The sun was shining brightly on Germantown, the affluent Philadelphia neighborhood, and two young boys were playing along a dirt road that ran behind their family's large and sprawling home. Six-year-old Walter Ross had a handful of jacks that he'd just scooped up off the ground. He laid them aside and handed a small red rubber ball to his little brother, Charlie, who was just four. Charlie bounced the ball into the air and tried to grab some of the little metal jacks in his chubby hand, but he only managed to snag one before the ball came back down. Aw, he groaned, unhappy about his bad luck and a little jealous of his brother's bigger hands and skill with the game. It's okay, Charlie, Walter said. Just try it again. You'll get it. Charlie picked up the ball and was just about to bounce it on the hard-packed alleyway when he and Walter's play was interrupted by the sound of a buggy coming toward them. The horse's hooves beat a steady rhythm on the road, catching the attention of the two boys. There were two men in the buggy. Big men, it looked like, but of course all men look big when seen by little boys. Their clothing was rough and dirty, nothing like the nice suits worn by their father. One of the men had a big black mustache and a thick beard that came down to his chest. The other man had a dusty-colored mustache, and while he wore no beard, he was sporting a pair of smoked goggles, which were used as sunglasses in those days. In hindsight, they were most likely an attempt at a disguise. The men stopped their buggy in the middle of the road. Each had a large smile on his face. Hello, boys, the man with the beard said to them, grinning widely and showing off his crooked yellowed teeth. Hello, Walter replied. The two boys had always been taught to be polite to adults, uh, even to strangers. What are your names? The man asked. Is that your house there? He gestured to the Ross house behind them. Yes, sir, Walter said. I'm Walter Ross, and this is my brother, Charlie. The two men exchanged a glance. Well, it's sure nice to meet you, the man replied. How'd you two like to go for a ride with us? We can go and get some candy. Well, we'll never know what it was, caution or shyness, but Walter refused the invitation. There was just something about the men. Maybe it was their dirty clothes, or maybe it was their smiles, which didn't quite reach their eyes. But he backed away, holding on to his little brother's shirt. The men chuckled, and then the man with the sandy mustache reached into the pocket of his coat and took out a handful of penny candy. He tossed it to the boys, and the pieces of candy fell to the ground. The bearded man cracked the reins across the back of the horse, and they drove off. That evening, when the boy's father, Christian Ross, arrived home, he asked the boys where they'd gotten the candy. Walter told him about the two men in the buggy, and Christian chuckled. Then he uttered what became one of the most heartbreaking statements of our story. Those men must love children, he said. Over the next few days, the men in the buggy became a familiar sight around the neighborhood. Each day, they passed by where Walter and Charlie were playing, talking to them, telling them jokes, and of course, handing out candy. By July 1st, the boys considered them friends. That afternoon, the men told Walter and Charlie they planned to go to downtown Philadelphia to buy fireworks for the Independence Day holiday. Did the boys want to come along? Well, without hesitation, the two boys climbed into the buggy. Walter seated himself between the two men, and Charlie trustingly sat on the lap of the man with the sandy mustache. The bearded man cracked the reins, and off they went. 
It was a pleasant ride. When Charlie got hungry, they stopped at a tavern and bought some cakes. When the buggy arrived at the corner of Palmer and Richmond Streets downtown, they spotted a store that had a dazzling display of fireworks in the front window. The bearded man handed Walter a quarter. Go on in there and get anything you want, he told the boy. We'll be right here waiting for you when you come out. Walter happily climbed from the buggy and disappeared into the store. There were so many things to look at. Things that sparkled, made noise, and according to the salesman, would fly into the sky and explode with colored sparks. He spent the next 10 minutes in the kind of heaven that only a young boy can dream about. His purchases were loaded into a brown paper bag, and he ran outside to show off all the things he'd bought to Charlie and their two friends. But the buggy where his brother and the two men had been waiting was gone. During the first half of the 19th century, most Americans were oblivious of crime. Oh, they knew murder, theft, and assorted violence and mayhem took place, but in the absence of telephones and even telegraphs, most crimes were local crimes. Most people knew little about sensational events, criminal or otherwise, in other parts of the country. But that changed in 1865 with the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. This horrific event unified the country, the population stunned by the bloody deed that had been done. Crime had now become a part of the American consciousness. Then in 1874, just nine years after the president was slain, the nation was again shocked by a terrible event. It was not the death of a great leader, but the disappearance of a previously unknown four-year-old named Charles Brewster Ross. Little Charlie Ross, as Americans would soon know him, was stolen away in what became the first kidnapping for ransom in the history of the United States. Even worse, Charlie Ross was never found. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our brand new season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and wonder. It's a place where bizarre happenings occur and where mysteries for which no rational explanation exists. Those mysteries often include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we'll be talking about this season. These are stories of people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexplainable, and sometimes seem impossible, but all of them in the end are terrifying. And that's for good reason. If the people you'll hear about in the season ahead so easily vanish without a trace, never to be seen again, then that means just about anyone can find themselves in the same predicament. They can vanish too. Maybe even you. 
This is episode three of the new season. One that we'll be having you make sure you know where your kids are every night. We call this one Kidnapped for Ransom. They called it the Snatch Racket in the 1930s when a rash of kidnappings involving wealthy oil and business executives began racking up hefty ransoms for members of organized crime who'd been set adrift looking for cash after prohibition had ended. But for years leading up to that, kidnappings had been rare. Even though the newspapers had so sensationalized the crime long after it stopped being news, the Charlie Ross case was an isolated event until the 1920s. Even so, the ability to stir hearts, minds, and pocketbooks didn't go unnoticed. During the days of silent films, kidnapping was a popular subject. Villains who ran off with beautiful women, usually tying them to railroad tracks so they could be rescued by the hero, was a common plot point at the picture show. Lured depictions of kidnappings became so popular in Chicago Nickelodeons that the police started confiscating the films and outlawing the genre. They feared that moving pictures might convince someone to commit the crime for real. Exploitation aside, though, kidnapping was a deadly and serious business. Ransom kidnapping began its heyday after World War I as America was entering the Jazz Age, and it thrived for the next two decades. During Prohibition, competition between various gangs was intense, and gunpoint abductions became a means to various ends. It was an efficient method of intimidation, persuasion, and in many cases, elimination. A large number of what were called one-way rides ended with a rival gangster shot dead in a ditch or wearing concrete overshoes at the bottom of a river. When ransom kidnappings occurred, large sums of money and liquor territories were often exchanged between gangs. Kidnappings became a cottage industry, and the newspapers loved it. All that press even provoked copycat crimes. Longtime listeners who turned into our Hollywood season might remember the story of L.A. evangelist Amy Simple McPherson, who was thought to have drowned while swimming in the ocean. She was miraculously resurrected a few weeks later in Arizona with a melodramatic tale of kidnapping and torture. But her story fell apart when it was learned that her so-called kidnapping was a ruse to spend time away with her secret lover in a cabin by the sea. But not all kidnappings were a lark or ended up with their victims returned after some cash changed hands. Listeners might also remember another story from the Hollywood season about the ransom kidnapping of Marion Parker, a young girl who was taken and then brutally murdered by a monster named William Hickman in 1927. Marion had been taken from her school and was held captive in Hickman's apartment while he sent ransom letters to her father, a bank manager named Perry Parker. The money was delivered to Hickman, but Marion was already dead, cut into pieces by her depraved captor. Hickman later stood trial and went to the gallows, but it was too late for Marion, which is likely why her ghost still lingers in the house where she should have grown up. Another sensational kidnapping occurred in 1924, when a young boy named Bobby Franks was taken in Chicago by Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold, two twisted killers who dreamed of committing the perfect crime. Bobby was picked up outside his school and was murdered within minutes of getting into his abductor's car. His body was then dumped in Wolf Lake on the city's southeast side. Like William Hickman, Leopold and Loeb wrote ransom notes to the Franks family, demanding money for their son's safe return, and like Hickman, they were also captured. 
but they didn't hang. They were sent to prison instead. For years, Bobby's ghost haunted the mausoleum where he was laid to rest, but that haunting came to an end after his kidnappers died. Richard Loeb was murdered in prison and Nathan Leopold, who was eventually paroled, died of a heart attack. After that, Bobby's spirit was never seen again. The most gruesome of the sensational kidnappings to occur in this era was that of Grace Budd in 1928. She went missing from her home in New York after leaving to attend a birthday party with a family friend, Mr. Howard, who was actually a deviant killer and pedophile named Albert Fish. Grace was never seen again. Letters to the Bud family followed, but Fish wouldn't be caught for six years. It was then learned he'd taken Grace to a rural summer house called Wisteria Cottage, where he'd murdered and eaten her. Thankfully, his life ended in the electric chair, while Grace's spirit was left to wander the grounds around Wisteria Cottage for decades. As terrible and horrifying as these crimes were, there was at least one saving grace for the families of these kidnapped children. They never had to wonder where their children were. As tragic as it was, they at least had a body to bury. The same can't be said for the parents of Charlie Ross. He was simply never seen again. Charlie Ross, a serious, blonde-haired, blue-eyed four-year-old, was the son of Christian K. Ross, the head of Ross Shot & Company, a well-established Philadelphia grocery business. The company was a prosperous one, and the Ross family lived in a beautiful home on Washington Lane in the Germantown neighborhood. Surrounded by other handsome homes in this well-to-do area, the Ross mansion was about 200 yards from the Germantown Railroad Depot. The sounds of the passenger trains were the only noises that disturbed this quiet community. Children were free to run and play wherever they wanted, and the only real danger for them in Germantown in 1874 was that they might wander too far from home and maybe get lost in the woods. Christian and his wife had seven children, of whom Charlie was the youngest. Mrs. Ross suffered from occasional health problems, and in mid-June of 1874, her doctor advised her to take a trip for some rest. Her husband readily agreed to a vacation for his wife, and with a capable staff to watch over the needs of the household, Mrs. Ross and her five daughters journeyed to Atlantic City for a month. This left Charlie and his brother Walter at home. When their father was at work, they were supposed to be watched over by a nanny and members of the staff, but as we know, on July 1st, 1874, they weren't watching the boys very closely. But why would they need to? Nothing bad ever happened in that neighborhood. Until it did, of course. After Walter came out of the drugstore with a bag of fireworks gripped tightly in his hand that day, he looked around frantically for the buggy where Charlie and their friends waited for him. They were nowhere to be seen, and now Walter began to panic. 
He was running up and down the street searching for them. He was in such a state of terror that passersby stopped and questioned them. One of them, a Germantown resident named Peacock, recognized him as one of Christian Ross's sons. He took the weeping boy by the hand and led him to the railroad station, but Walter didn't want to go. He said that his little brother, Charlie, was still downtown with two strange men. He frantically tried to tell Peacock what had happened, but the man just shook his head. He assured Walter the men in the buggy had just gotten tired of waiting for him and had driven Charlie home. He purchased a ticket for himself and for Walter, and they boarded the train that would take them both to Germantown. Charlie had now been missing for a little less than an hour. At 8 p.m., still clutching that paper bag filled with fireworks, Walter arrived home. His father had been worried about his sons, although foul play had never crossed his mind. And yet Walter's story about the two men in the buggy chilled his blood. While one of the maids fed Walter some dinner and put him to bed, Christian left the house and went downtown to the Philadelphia police station. Charlie had now been missing for about six hours. Unfortunately, the actions of the police and the disappearance of Charlie Ross are not exactly inspiring. Although we have to take into consideration that this was an unprecedented crime. Police officers and detectives who had spent most of their careers dealing with murders, robberies, and an assortment of mundane crimes now had to deal with something completely beyond their understanding. There were no police procedures to handle something like this. In fact, when Christian arrived at the police station and respectfully told the story of Charlie and the two men, officers didn't believe him. Who would want to steal a boy and why? Nevertheless, Christian convinced them he was telling the truth, and they agreed to alert patrolmen throughout the city to watch for the buggy and its three occupants. But no one spotted them that night, and Charlie didn't return home. When the sun came up the next day, the boy had been missing for more than 16 hours. The police had no other ideas than to suggest that Christian place an advertisement in the Philadelphia Public Ledger newspaper for July 3rd, like someone might do for a lost kitten or puppy. The ad read, Lost, on July 1st, a small boy, about four years of age, Light complexion and light curly hair. A suitable reward will be paid on return to E.L. Joyce, Central Station, corner of 5th and Chestnut Streets. Christian had used the name E.L. Joyce because his wife was still vacationing in Atlantic City. Undoubtedly, she read the public ledger. Everyone in Philadelphia did, even on vacation. And he didn't want to upset her by finding out her youngest child was missing. With the lost and found ad now running, the police started working on a circular of their own. It described the two men as accurately as Walter could remember them, and it offered a more detailed description of Charlie and his clothing. The bulletin description read, Charles was wearing a brown linen suit, a broad-brimmed, unbleached Panama hat with a black band, laced shoes, and blue and white striped stockings. The boy had long, flaxen, curly hair, hazel eyes, clear skin, round, full face, and no marks except those made by vaccination on his arm. Well, the bulletin was met with silence until the morning of July 5th. By then, Charlie had been missing for four days. The morning mail delivered a letter to the Ross home. It made it clear that Charlie was not merely missing. He'd been kidnapped. 
Dated and posted in Philadelphia the previous day, the letter to Christian stated that Charlie was in good health and safely hidden. It emphasized there was no sense in searching for him. Most important, the police should not be called into the search. The note ended by saying Christian would hear more in a few days. Until then, he must do nothing. The letter was signed only with the name John. Well, the letter itself was strange. It was crudely lettered in a rough pencil, had no capital letters, and was inconsistent with misspellings. The word might be spelled correctly on one line and then spelled wrong in another. It seemed like the writer was trying to make himself appear more uneducated than he was. Well, Christian rushed the letter to the police, who still had trouble believing that a kidnapping had actually taken place. They assured Christian they would do everything possible to quickly apprehend the kidnappers. And then they did nothing. There was still no sign of Charlie Ross. Two days later, on July 7th, Christian Ross received the first ransom letter in American history. Using the same kind of crude spelling, the letter demanded $20,000 for the safe return of Charlie Ross. And that is, for your information, just over half a million dollars today. A chilling phrase in the letter read, If you're willing to part with your money, why, you could have your child. Otherwise, he must die. Christian was instructed to place an ad in the newspaper if he was willing to pay the ransom and wanted his son to live. Letter in hand, Christian again rushed to police headquarters. Finally, they seemed willing to take the kidnapping seriously. It had taken them seven days to do so. Detectives were at last being ordered to search trains and boats and stop all those leaving the city by horse and buggy. A house-to-house -house search for Charlie took place in the neighborhood where he'd been taken and known criminals were rounded up. Until now, the story of the kidnapping had been kept out of the newspapers, but it was impossible to hide the police activity that was taking place, and the story broke, forcing Christian to finally contact his wife in Atlantic City and tell her the heartbreaking news. She and Charlie's sisters returned to Germantown at once. The newspaper stories sent a panic throughout the city. Parents were terrified that something might happen to one of their own children. On numerous occasions, little boys who looked like Charlie Ross were hauled into the nearest police station, only to be sent away. The police added to the general frenzy by stating that the kidnappers might dye Charlie's hair and dress him like a girl. Thanks to this, it seemed almost every child, regardless of hair color, clothing, or sex, was suspected of being the lost boy. More letters arrived at the Ross home. On July 8th, one asked if Christian was prepared to pay 4,000 pounds for the return of his son. The police dismissed this as a ploy to make the kidnappers seem British, but custom officials at Atlantic ports were alerted to watch for Charlie, just in case. English authorities were contacted and asked to inspect any small boys seen disembarking from American ships. Christian also started receiving letters from all over the country, adding to the confusion. The letters relayed news of seeing a blonde-haired boy in the company of suspicious characters. One letter from Goshen, New York, told of a blonde child who was seen traveling with a band of gypsies. Ross made the first of several long trips to investigate, but the boy wasn't Charlie. Oddly, it seemed the kidnappers were just now discovering that Christian Ross was not actually a wealthy man. He was well off, but he was far from rich. 
Earlier in his career, he had filed for bankruptcy and it had been his brother-in-law who set him up in the grocery business. The size of the Ross house had convinced the kidnappers that he was a man of wealth. But as the entire city hunted them, they discovered he wasn't. In one of the letters, they wrote, We know you're not worth much money, but we are aware that you have rich friends from whom you can borrow. If you love money better than your child, its blood will be on your head. Although Christian made no real effort to raise the $20,000 the kidnappers were demanding, it was an impossible amount of money for him. He did place newspaper ads that claimed he was doing so. The kidnappers warned him that no amount less than what they demanded would be accepted, and Christian replied, Have not got it. Am doing my best to raise it. Five more days passed, and the city of Philadelphia, as well as people around the country, held their breaths to see what would happen next. Accounts of the kidnapping were now being featured on the front pages of papers across the country, and in periodicals like Harper's and Leslie's Illustrated Weekly, the two most popular of the time. But still no money and no Charlie. More days passed. Christian kept promising the ransom, but he didn't deliver it. He was stalling for time as the police continued to scour the city and the surrounding area for the kidnappers. In late July, Philadelphia's mayor ended his own New Jersey vacation and returned to his official desk. At a meeting of government and police officials, along with some prominent citizens, it was decided that a $20,000 reward would be offered for the capture of Charlie's kidnappers. A lengthy statement about the reward was released by the mayor's office and it apparently chased the kidnappers out of the city because the next letter that Christian received was postmarked in New York and warned him that he needed to produce the ransom money soon or face the consequences. The abductors were tired of waiting. The ransom was to be made up of small bills and placed in a leather bag that should be painted white so that it would be clearly visible at night. Christian was then to take the bag and board a train to New York City on the night of July 30th. He must come alone, no witnesses and no police. He would stand on the back platform of the train during the trip and when he saw a bright light with a white flag waving beside it, he was to toss the bag down onto the railroad tracks. The train was not to stop, nor was Ross to end his journey in New York. He was directed to remain on board as far as Albany. If he agreed to the plan, he would place an ad in the New York Herald, indicating his willingness to go along with it. Well, Christian took the letter to the police and they told him to keep stalling. Place the ad in the newspaper, buy the bag and paint it white. Then, instead of cash, put a letter inside the bag that said the ransom wouldn't be paid until he had proof that Charlie was alive. The cops told him to say that the ransom would only be paid if the money and the child could be exchanged at the same time. Christian was also told to insist on a better means of communication than the personal columns of newspapers. So on the night of July 30th, painted bag in hand, Christian boarded the New York-bound train and went out onto the rear platform. He waited patiently as the train steamed toward New York City, ready to toss the bag when the signal was spotted. But it never happened. No one knows why the kidnappers failed to go through with the ransom drop that they themselves had devised, but Christian arrived in New York red-faced and angry, and he wasn't the only one. A contingent of Philadelphia police officers had been hiding inside the train's rear car, hoping to capture the kidnappers after the bag had been snagged. 
Since the kidnappers were now in New York, Christian and the detectives from Philadelphia arranged a meeting with Chief of Police George Walling. He had gained a reputation as a tough but fair and honest law officer during his decades on the force. He was elevated to the position of chief of police because of his personal heroics during the New York City draft riots of 1863, while serving as captain of the 20th precinct on the Lower West Side of the city. While well, he took an interest in the Ross case and asked to see the ransom notes that had been mailed from New York. The veteran policeman took a careful look at the letters and announced that he recognized the handwriting as that of a man named William Mosher, who also used the alias William Johnson. Mosher was a small-time criminal from the notorious Five Points District with a long arrest record. He was well-known to the New York police, but no one seemed to be able to find him once the search began. But Chief Walling personally led the search for Mosher and repeatedly questioned William Westervelt, Mosher's brother-in-law. Westervelt, until recently, had been a New York City policeman, but he'd been kicked off the force for accepting bribes from gamblers. Walling offered to give Westervelt his job back if he could lead them to Mosher. Westervelt stalled, asking for more time. He even demanded complete exoneration, back pay, and a promotion. Well, Walling refused, and the two men met several times, arguing heatedly. The deal fell through, and Westervelt refused to provide them with any information. Well, strangely, Walling never thought to have Westervelt followed so that he might lead the police to Mosher and to Charlie Ross. Seems careless for a man with such experience in law enforcement, even though he had only become police chief that very month in July 1874. Uh, whatever the reason for Walling's incompetence, he failed Charlie Ross in the same way that the Philadelphia police had been failing him for a more than a month now. Back home, Christian Ross continued receiving letters from the kidnappers. He also received an increasing number of letters from around the country, reporting that Charlie had been found. Blonde-haired children seen wandering the streets, abandoned by their parents, or even playing close to their own homes, were hysterically identified as Charlie Ross. Christian took several hopeful trips to see these lost children, but returned home disappointed every time. In mid-November, four months after Charlie went missing, a letter from the kidnappers arrived and ordered Christian to stand in the lobby of the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York on November 18th. He was to carry the $20,000 with him, wrapped as an ordinary package. He must remain in the lobby all day, and at some point, a messenger would arrive for the money. If he agreed to this plan, he was again supposed to insert an ad in the New York Herald. The ad was to read, Saul of Tarsus, Fifth Avenue Hotel, Instant. Christian placed the advertisement. By now, he was worn down and exhausted. His wife was heartbroken and her health was failing. Charlie's brother, Walter, was racked with guilt and cried himself to sleep almost every night. Christian had finally gotten fed up with the inept police department and had hired the Pinkertons to investigate the case. On their advice, he had managed to raise most of the ransom money. He now wrapped the money in a plain brown package and sent his brother and nephew to wait in his place at the hotel lobby. They waited all day, but the messengers never came. And they never heard from the kidnappers again.
While the Ross family waited in vain for another letter from the men who kidnapped Charlie, a seemingly unrelated crime occurred a month after the failed ransom exchange. It occurred in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn, New York. It took place in a home that overlooked the New York Harbor, owned by Judge Charles Van Brunt, the presiding judge of the appellate division of the New York Supreme Court. It was the judge's summer house. During the winter, his judicial duties kept him in New York and Albany, and he closed the Bay Ridge house. Fearing robbery in his absence, he arranged for an elaborate burglar alarm system that sounded in the nearby home of his brother. On the night of December 14th, the sound of the alarm broke the silence of his brother's home. The weather outside was cold, wet, and miserable, and Van Brunt and his oldest son looked out at the judge's house. They spotted a flickering light moving in the darkness behind the windows. Van Brunt roused two hired men, and the four of them ran out into the night with guns and rain gear. They converged on the judge's mansion and stationed themselves at each corner of the house. A few minutes later, the cellar door opened and two men emerged, pulling a heavy bag behind them. Van Brunt shouted at the robbers to drop the bag and raise their hands. The men let go of the bag, but then one of them ran straight for one of Van Brunt's hired men who shot him dead. The other robber opened fire, but a bullet from Van Brunt's own gun dropped him where he stood. With a cry, the burglar fell to the ground. The men converged on the fallen robber, and as he lay dying, he gasped out his final words. His name, he said, was Joseph Douglas. His companion was William Mosher. Then he croaked out more words. We kidnapped Charlie Ross. We did it to make money. Van Brunt dropped to his knees beside the man and begged him to tell where Charlie can be found. I don't know, Douglas whispered, but Mosher does. Van Brunt's son dragged over Mosher's body so that his companion could see that his partner was incapable of ever telling anyone anything, but it made no difference. Douglas only shook his head weakly. He assured Van Brunt that Charlie Ross would be safely returned in a few days. Chief Walling knows all about us, he added. He was after us, and now he has us. And with those words, he died. The next day, Walter Ross, now age seven, was brought to New York to view the bodies of the two dead men in the morgue. Without hesitation, he identified them as the two men in the buggy who had taken Charlie. The police rushed to question Mrs. Lillian Mosher, the kidnapper's wife and the sister of the former police officer, William Westervelt. She first stated for the record that Mosher, a father of four, had been a fine husband and parent. Moments later, though, she admitted that he had planned the Charlie Ross kidnapping. She had no idea where the boy might be and had never known where he was hidden. Yet, like the dying Joseph Douglas, she stated with conviction that the child would soon be safely returned. William Westervelt was arrested for conspiring with the kidnappers, but as hard as they tried, the police were unable to tie him directly to the abduction. Police informants came forward and testified to Westervelt being drunk in a Mott Street bar and boasting that he knew the identities of Charlie's abductors. He also claimed that he thought up the secret signals, the Saul of Tarsus line in particular, by which Christian and the kidnappers communicated. The police, stung by the fact that Westervelt had been one of their own, tried desperately to get him to talk. In the end, he was charged only as an accessory to the kidnapping. He was brought to trial in Philadelphia on August 30th, 1875. At the trial, both the judge and the prosecutor hammered at Westervelt to say whether Charlie was alive and if so, where he might possibly be. Westervelt, denying everything, sullenly repeated he didn't know the boy's whereabouts. 
At the same time, he also stated that he was all right and would be returned home soon. On September 30th, with Charlie now missing for 14 months, the jury found Westerville guilty as an accomplice. The judge sentenced him to seven years of solitary confinement at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. He served his time and was never heard of again. Tragically, the same could be said for Charlie Ross. He was never returned home as the kidnappers kept saying he would be. He was simply never seen again. Christian Ross spent the next 20 years looking for his son. He spent more than $60,000, which would be in the millions today, on advertisements, the Pinkertons and other detectives, and on numerous trips chasing sightings of Charlie all over America and even in Mexico and Europe. After looking at as many as 273 children who were not his son, he finally gave up. When the Westervelt trial ended, newspapers speculated that Charlie might have died of grief, malnutrition, or mistreatment. Some believed he was murdered and his body buried in a secret location, while others surmised he'd been adopted by some unknowing family. Of these alternatives, death by murder or neglect seemed the most likely. Why else would Westervelt have remained silent, preferring long years in prison to telling what he knew? Had he told the truth, Westervelt might have been tried for Charlie's murder. Chances are that Charlie died soon after the abduction. During the long correspondence for the kidnappers, no clue was ever given as to Charlie's health, his state of mind, or his general welfare. No proof was ever offered he was still alive. Many have speculated that Westervelt transported Charlie to New York immediately after the kidnapping, leaving Mosher and Douglas in Philadelphia to write the first series of ransom notes. Westervelt may have become alarmed by the fact that he was holding America's first kidnapped child and killed him or neglected him or, as rumor had it, dropped his body into the East River. Even though he was likely dead, Charlie remained very much alive in legend, rumor, and in the hearts and minds of those who remembered him. Well into the 1900s, mothers warned their children that they might be kidnapped like Charlie Ross if they didn't behave because, you know, Charlie was never found. Well, not the real Charlie anymore. As time passed, scores of teenage boys claimed to be Charlie. None of them were. Even P.T. Barnum, well aware of the kidnapping's publicity value, got into the act. He offered a personal reward of $10,000 for the return of the boy, never expecting to pay it. He got the publicity he was looking for, but he didn't get Charlie. Charlie's name was kept alive through the end of the 19th century. Songs were written, trinkets were sold, and his father penned a best-selling book about the missing boy to pay for his continued search. Each year, the anniversary of the kidnapping was marked by the press and the story was told and retold. In the new century, the story was still making news. In the 1920s and 30s, a rash of elderly men on their deathbeds claimed to be Charlie Ross, but of course, None of them actually were. As late as 1939, a man in Phoenix, Arizona, filed papers in court in an effort to establish his identity as the missing boy, but those efforts also failed. We'll never know for sure what happened to Charlie, which may be the reason that his ghost was rumored to haunt the Ross home on Washington Avenue in Germantown for many years. The sound of a child crying was often heard in the night. But was it the ghost of Charlie or someone else. Sometimes the mystery behind a haunting can't be so easily solved. Charlie was only four when he vanished. For all we know, he was taken in by some unsuspecting couple and lived a long and happy life, never knowing he was once the most famous boy in America. 
If that's true, then why would his spirit return to a place that he would have been so young he barely remembered it? A more likely ghost in the Ross house would be his brother Walter, who was devastated by Charlie's kidnapping and spent the rest of his life blaming himself for what happened. Aside from Charlie's parents, there's likely no one who mourned the loss of the boy more than Walter did. And perhaps it was his grief that kept him at his former home for so long. Maybe just waiting for the day when his little brother might finally return. get into this joyful okay. tale yeah i'm ready when you're ready yeah thanks for returning for more episodes of the american hauntings podcast where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history this is season seven of the podcast which we call gone gone, gone. Okay, I'm, trying, I'm trying to come up with a voice on that one but i, I like it we'll, we'll workshop it <laughs> yeah uh, i'm your co-host cody beck and with me is my co-host author historian crime buff and the founder of american hauntings troy taylor hey you already heard me so Working yes. on our uh, working on our title title voice. So. Yeah, yeah. We should have next time before the season. We should like brainstorm and workshop a couple different. Uh, yeah, last time it was vote. easy. It was kind of easy last time. That's you true. It just came out woods and fields, dark and wicked. You know that was yeah. this one's one word. That's not quite so easy. I know. I think we should get that. Um, that what is it? Justin Timberlake or In Sync song. <laughs> I don't know it. I'm sorry. Oh, it's just called Gone. Um, oh, well, it wouldn't go. It wouldn't go with our theme, so, but I like no, it. No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, hey, we just had Dead of Winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I've talked to a few people about this. I've posted about it a little bit, but I just definitely wanted to uh, to say to our people listening on the podcast that we want to thank everybody for Dead of Winter. Um, we, uh, everybody that came out on February 11th, um, it was a lot of fun. This is our first regular show since then. And uh, once again, we were overwhelmed uh, by everything. And I actually got some interesting information when they came and, and we filled another truck, by the way, mm -hmm. of canned goods and items and things. We, as I like to say, if you saw the video, if you haven't, go to, go to the Facebook page and watch the video of the uh, table collapse that we had. Uh, we had so much stuff, a table fell. Um, and it's true. Um, but the guy, when they came to pick up all the stuff, told me that, you know, we, we have always said, you know, that by February, people are really in need. The food banks are, you know, the donations are down. He told me that by February and in this February in particular, that um, they're so down on donations that they've been having to buy everything. They've been oh, purchasing all the stuff for the food banks instead of donations. So we actually really gave them a big boost uh, <laughs> by giving them all the, the stuff that we gave them. So that really, uh, it really did help. It really did tremendously help the food bank. So they wanted to thank all of our, our people. And um, so, yeah, I, um, I appreciated it too. And it was great to see everybody. I think we had a good time. Uh, we had, uh, I mean, uh, we had our, our live episode, but I think everything that went on that day, we had a lot of fun. So it's good. Yeah. Day. 
It was great. I love that the uh, table uh, collapsed when it was being set up by an engineer. <laughs> yeah. Who should have known better, yeah. Renee. He was doing this intricate stacking. You know, they had the, a circle of stacking that they were doing on the table and then just collapsed. I'm going to have to talk to her so, about, you know, structural uh, integrity and I things know, and I know, weight I know, distribution. So. Well, the oh. next big event we've got coming up, of course, Haunted America Conference uh, in June. So I know a lot of you are already signed up for that. I've been seeing a lot of people come through. I've been seeing the uh, the podcast uh, promo code popping up. Um, if you haven't signed up, we hope you will. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Um, it is just right outside of Alton. So it's uh, centrally located uh, from where it's always been. And um, it's going to be a really good year. We're really excited. And as I've told Cody before, if this had been past years at our old location, we'd already be sold out after, you know, a month of ticket sales. So we've still got a few to go, but at some point we will be sold out and we're going to have to limit it at some point. So uh, we do hope that you'll, you'll sign up and we'd love to see you there. So go check out ghostconference.net. Uh, and you can get all the details on it. Um, we we have a lot of other things coming up too. So if you're in St. Louis, Alton, Missouri, Illinois, whatever, um, join me on one of our Dinner and Spirits tours. Uh, we get the Ghost of River Road tour, which has been our long time one that we've been doing for years now. And then we have a brand new river tour that actually starts this coming week, uh, the Spirits of Alton tour. So it's going to, um, if you think, oh, I've already taken your Alton bus tour, this isn't it. It's a different one. There's going to be stuff on this tour that's not on any of the other tours. Um, it's coming right out of the new edition of Haunted Alton, stuff we've never talked about or seen before. So pretty excited about it. Um, well, I'm also like, you know, deathly like, ready to throw up over it too because it's something new it's mm -hmm. brand new i'm excited about doing it but i'm dreading it because i've never done it before and if it's a disaster uh, i'm screwed so i'm sure it'll be great <laughs> yeah anyway we've also got dinner and our dinner evenings coming up too uh american monsters and hh holmes starved rock murder southern illinois gangsters american cults and of course the st louis exorcism which is become like a perennial favorite. I do it almost every other month now, but I don't have another free one until June. Uh, they're all filled up between now and then. So um, if you're interested though, tours, dinners, whatever, just go check out uh, dinnerandspirits.net and, um, or I'm sorry, dinnerandspirits.com. And um, we will uh, hopefully see you at something coming up. Yeah, you got too many domains. You I know, keep them all straight. Well, most of them, the net part is okay. And then, you know, I got .com on some of them. And I, I mean, who in the world has like, I don't know, some of these I wonder about that I couldn't get. Mm -hmm. uh, but dinnerandspirits.com, not .net, because that one was available. <laughs> yeah. Got it. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out too, to um, Emily Vandegrift, who gave us some artwork at um, yes. Dead of Winter. Yes. Gave, gave us a, each a postcard and then um, a magnet. Yeah, she did made. she send you like where to find her website or anything? Yeah, it's um so on Instagram, I believe it's art underscore by underscore Emily Vandegrift. Um okay. I can link out. I'll okay. probably take a picture of the stuff she sent us and post it somewhere. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because they uh she had some those were really cool. Those yeah. postcards were awesome. Yeah, so they're both on my like fridge right now. More of the rest of her stuff. So and I think yeah. a lot of people who listen would too. So absolutely. 
Um, I'm going to dive into a listener review here. This one is from Whole Chicken. Um, it's just titled Love the Show. <laughs> I stumbled onto the show just because I wanted to learn more about Alton, Illinois myself. I've heard stories rinsing TV shows regarding Alton and the hauntings. It's refreshing to see a podcast give the truth and the facts, the stories, and not just go at the status quo and build up the legends. I recently started sharing this podcast with my 10-year-old son, who has begun to really question history and want to know more. Keep up the great work. Be careful sharing some of the episodes with a 10-year-old. <laughs> right, right. Well, my other thing would be, please move on from uh, from season one. Sure. So uh, keep keep going. I swear to God, it gets better. So uh, as we we are prone to tell everyone, please please go on. Please, yeah, let's go BS. Past yeah. Time. So thank you for the uh, the. You know, speaking of whole chickens, though, I ran across an article. And this is does peripherally fit with our podcast. I ran okay. across an article about a woman in Minnesota who was arrested for domestic abuse because she hit her husband in the back of a head with the whole chicken. Wow. Yeah. So that's creative. Um, yeah, you know what? But of course, it made me think what a perfect murder weapon. Because we eat, eat the evidence. Especially yeah. because if you had a frozen whole chicken and you hit your husband in the back of the head with it and shattered his skull and killed him, you could then unthaw and cook and eat the chicken. There'd be no murder weapon and no way to figure out who did it. Well, you'd be the first suspect. But right. if you could prove that, you know, um, you, you know, were somewhere else or had a good alibi. Yeah, that's why. Anyways, I just kill, a thought. I, just a thought. Uh, just I, throwing that out there. For I always ladies kill out people. There who might think about you know how they'd like to hit their husband in the back of the head. So I always kill people with um, icicles, you know, because it's. <laughs> well, the there same you go. Kind of, yeah, that's the same, same kind, of kind of thing. Same idea, you know. Yes. If you don't eat them, they just melt. So, yeah. You know, just let it go. You can eat the the murder weapon. <laughs> that's somehow. All right. I'm better. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, there's going to be a new story popping up in one of your <laughs> Hell Hath No Fury books or something, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, Germantown, Philadelphia, uh, six-year-old Walter Ross, four-year-old brother Charlie. Before I knew anything about this story, I said, is this the Charlie bit my finger kids that we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> They're here playing outside, two men approaching a buggy. The boys give them their names and like, yeah, we live right there. And yeah, well, you know, who thought? You know? I know. And they really tried to like, we have candy, get in sort of trick. Yeah, which, yeah. We have a puppy. You know, yeah. You know, they only had candy this time. So. And the father says, those men must really love children. Oh, I know. Right. Which I feel like um, if they kept coming back, I would not say that. I would just be out there with like my Remington or something. Yeah. Well, like, the thing is, the though, I here. mean, yeah. Okay. So. And you're right. Now we know. I, I, yeah, but look at it. Look at it from that time period. You've got a dad who's, you know, supposed to be watching these kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's bad now. Yeah, you know, dads who all think that they're babysitting. You know, uh -huh. uh, yeah, they're watching their own it. kids. But um, back then, a man had no concept of how to raise a child. I mean, if a wife died, you immediately figured out where you're going to put the kids until you could get remarried because you mm. could not be taking care of them. And so off the wife goes, cause she's sick and takes all the daughters with her to Atlantic city and leaves him at home with some of the staff who have their hands full trying to run this house. So these kids are essentially just feral, you know, <laughs> yeah. playing in the street, literally playing in the street. Um, 
Yeah. So it's, um, you know, he's not thinking anything about it and he can't be bothered and he goes to work every day and is gone probably from, you know, early morning till evening because somebody else is supposed to be taking care of the kids. So uh, that's obviously not to say he didn't love his kids because I mean, look at the, how this story ends up with for him, but on the other hand, you know, this was like a, a perfect storm of it was going to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. And it's just too bad that it was little Charlie that it happened to. Yeah. Well, you talked about the kidnapping escalating um, eventually and how it was getting so bad in like movies that they outlawed it. Essentially, like in <laughs> yeah. The yeah. 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 Years after this happened, leading up to other children going missing. Yes, they actually did, at least in Chicago, for a yeah. while in the Nickelodeons. They, uh, they said, oh, no, no more kidnapping movies. Somebody's going to get an idea from this. And of course, everyone did, not yeah. necessarily from the movies, but yeah, kidnapping became a, you know, a, a great thing, especially for criminals to do. It was an easy, low-risk kind of thing back then mm-hmm. well i mean it's still used by you know cartels and stuff sure, today sure. and yeah. um, people still get at, kidnapped that's for sure i was thinking about there's a line that i love from um sicario uh day of the soldado where josh brolin's talking about um he's like you don't kill a king because like that ends wars he's like what you want to do is that you kidnap a prince and then the king will start the war for you there you go and yeah, i was like yeah uh, that, good that point. matches yeah it does yeah, uh, and so some of the famous kidnapping cases we talked about, um, Amy Simple McPherson and uh, Marion Parker, of course, yeah, which was yeah. a really heartbreaking one. Yeah, um, I didn't know Grace Bud, um, that that was that I couldn't remember her name, but I've definitely heard that story about Albert Fish yeah. and who was yeah. just an insane guy He's, in his own uh, right. He is a monster, he really yeah, is a monster. Yeah, if you don't know anything about him and you want to make yourself upset, go uh, read up on him or watch any reading. Well, it's the same way with Leopold and Loeb, and I've written about those two guys quite a bit too. And there's yeah, nothing redeeming about them either. So yeah, but I thought it was worthy of mention that you know they came in the wake of Charlie. I mean, mm-hmm. Charlie was the first. You know, yeah. You said this sentence. I just thought was really funny. You said Charlie Ross, a serious blonde-haired, blue-eyed four-year-old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sentence I, I don't know. Well, that's that how everybody often. described him, but yeah, it is how serious is a four-year-old anyway. But yeah, I know. Right. I know. Eventually, you know, a kid gets kidnapped, they put out a lost ad, and I was like just wondering, is this where eventually they get the idea for like the milk carton kind of <laughs> thing? I, yeah, that's um yeah, the milk carton thing is a is a is a whole other story. Oh yeah. Uh, that is a really, you know, the the milk carton kids, that was a that was a big thing when I was a kid. I mm-hmm. mean, I remember them popping up on milk cartons after the first couple of kids went missing and they, and it's, it's hard to say if it helped or if it just traumatized kids uh, at the breakfast table. There's been a lot of debate over that uh, over the years, but this, this lost ad that, <laughs> that he ran in the paper, I mean, that was the police's suggestion because, well, first they didn't even believe him, you yeah. know, they didn't, oh, nobody's going to kidnap a kid. What are you talking about? You know, they didn't believe it. And then, so he puts that in there. I mean, it, it literally reads like my dog wandered mm-hmm. off, you know, and it's just an unreal. And then, and then to top it all off, uses a fake name because he doesn't want his wife to know their kid has been kidnapped. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm just I'm reading that and I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> what a terrible idea. You know, God. I mean, I, I guess I get it. 
but uh, I suppose, just, I mean, a different, again, you, you look at it and you say, well, it's a different time, you know, uh, it's uh, the, I guess the really misogynistic time period, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the little lady couldn't handle that kind of news, right. she might, you know, clutch her pearls and faint on the, uh, on the, on the, on the sofa. So I don't know, man, that's uh, <laughs> got to clean this mess up before mom gets yeah, home. Before yeah. she gets home. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Mm. Um, well, let's finally start getting letters and, um, from the kidnappers and there's even inconsistencies in the misspellings which is like you're just so stupid that you're trying yeah. too hard to yeah 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 stupid. i mean immediately they they realize that you know he you know when, when you misspell the one word and then spell it again correctly in the next yeah time, you're probably faking it you know yep they get a ransom letter for twenty thousand um, dollars now suddenly every child is the lost boy yeah, you know, being yeah. seen everywhere and uh, finally, the mayor's like, all right, well, we'll do you one better. Like, we'll put out a $20,000 reward for yeah, you know, your capture. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I thought them the idea a stupid to idea. Why don't you just give him the $20,000 to pay as a ransom? I know. You know right? what I mean? Instead of putting it out as a reward and then the kidnappers left town. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that was a dumb move. You know, I thought that the kidnappers planning to throw the money, uh, get the money thrown from a moving train was interesting. Yeah, um, isn't it? Yeah, paint the bag white so that we can see it, and then yeah. you know, throw it off the train. But I mean, talk about disorganized. I mean, these these guys yeah, they don't even show really up. Couldn't get their act together at any point. So <laughs> it's my guess couple. would be that, like so many other cases like this, we talked about that this kid was probably dead within you know a day or two. Um, yeah, that that's why they kept you know putting off doing anything kept asking for the money but never would offer any proof of life of course who knew to do that again sure uh, you know nobody knew because it wasn't anything anybody had ever done before they were trailblazers yeah 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 <laughs> not in a good way for sure no. uh police chief george walling so he just happens to like recognize the handwriting of this well i know that I, that's kind of what i thought too um i thought that seemed hard to believe but mm -hmm. on the other hand you know i guess they'd had some problems with this guy I, I don't know i mean the 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 thing with um the william westervelt thing you know with it, the brother-in-law i'm gonna guess that because he was mixed up with this guy who was a criminal that mm -hmm. maybe he had some reason to recognize it but yeah i found that a little hard to believe too but that's what every Every account I could find in newspaper reports said the same thing. So yeah, here we yeah. are. So. And that part about um, Westervelt too, it seemed like they was kind of like trying to haggle with him, you know, or I feel like, couldn't you just be like, I'm going to charge you for like not. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Know. Why are we negotiating with yeah, this? Yeah, right. It made no sense to me. I, I I mean, I guess because he was a cop. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's the only thing. I, I mean, he was one of their own kind of thing. But on the other hand, man, just. Lock the guy up. Yeah. Better yet, just beat him with a rubber hose. Yeah, hit him with a you phone. Know, it was a back then, you know, there were no rules to that. Make him talk. I yeah. I, I had a tough time with all of that New York stuff. Yeah. So, and then not following him and stuff, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so botched. definitely dropped the ball, which again makes you wonder if there was some kind of corruption involved, even though so that's what my immediate thought was. So I started digging into 
uh, the police chief to find out who George Walling was. And there isn't any single account of him that doesn't talk about him being this upstanding, honest cop. You know, I, I mean, I looked everywhere. I couldn't find anything that even hinted at any kind of corruption from him. Um, so, I mean, all I could think is if he wasn't corrupt, he was uh, definitely inept, yeah. you know, incompetent maybe, or I don't know, just dealing with something out of their element, I suppose, the same way that the Philadelphia guys were. That's right. Well, that's probably why Christian uh, hires the Pinkertons. Yeah. Who yeah. Didn't yeah. didn't crack the case either. Yeah. Who? But who immediately said, "Um, okay, just get the money together. Yeah. Then we'll catch the guys, but get the money together first. Yeah. So. Um. And then they never hear from the kidnappers again. Nope. Um. Nope. And I thought that that would just be the end of it, but then you go on to talk about at Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, two guys get caught robbing a judge's summer home, get popped pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess, popped. yeah, just, yeah. Uh, I guess, can, can had to get it off his chest before he I, dies. Yes, man. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but yeah, he did. And, you know, I mean, that didn't, but what's, what's interesting about it is everyone involved in this just kept saying, okay, well, now that, now that the kidnappers are dead, Charlie will be back soon. What he'll yeah. turn to. Everybody said it, but it's it so never happened. bizarre. Yeah. So, which makes me think that if the kid was still alive by this point, which is months later, but if he is still alive, they probably had him like locked in a basement at some house somewhere and no one ever came back for him. Yeah. Because the kidnappers are dead. Um, Westerveld's in jail. Anybody who had any part of this is can't do anything and they don't even know where the kid is. And he probably starved to death in a yeah. basement somewhere. You Jeez. know, which makes it even makes the story a lot worse. Yeah. You know? I mean, not even I said, well, he probably died accidentally somewhere along the way. But actually, this is worse, a lot worse. In yeah. Life. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for somehow bringing it down. Even yeah, more. Completely, a little bit further down. Yeah. Well, at least nobody cut him up into pieces and dropped him off in separate, you know, packages for his dad to pick up. So that's you know, true. Worse. So, that is true. Uh, Christian spends the next 20 years looking for his son. Westervelt's only charged as an accessory. Um, story grows and grows, and many people on their deathbed claim to be Charlie Ross. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's the same way, you know, years later, you know, what, some 50 years later, uh, you know, you'd have the Lindbergh kidnapping, which mm -hmm. I didn't include in that initial thing because I was trying to say, well, these are people who, while tragic endings, at least found out what happened to their kids. The Lindberghs never really knew either. They found some remains in the woods that may or may not have been their kid. Nobody knows, uh, but they never saw their kid again. And, you know, this was the most famous guy in the country at the time. His kid was kidnapped. And um, we'll never know for sure what happened. But again, like in this case, people came out of the woodwork years later claiming to be the Lindbergh baby. Mm -hmm. I mean, it went on forever, you know, just like this one did. Old men on their deathbeds and, you know, 30, 40 years later, claiming to be Charlie Ross or, you know, or the Lindbergh kid or whatever. Um, you know, it's I doing the kind of research and the writing I do. I run across that a lot. Mm -hmm. People want to be part of the story, you know, and they all come out of, you know, wherever to say that they're somebody um, even and long after people even remember the story, don't even remember it anymore. You know, yeah. Happens. So. People are crazy, man. 
Yep. You know, so then is is the ghost of their house? Would it be Charlie? Would it be Walter? I, don't think I could kind Charlie. of see either way. Yeah, I think yeah. it could go either way. Uh, but the story went around for a long time. And but I've always wondered if it wasn't Walter. That's kind of my thought on it rather than Charlie. Um, when we don't know what happened to Charlie. So maybe like Marion Parker, he just wanted to get back home. And that's where he ended up. But, you know, hearing about a kid weeping in the, a boy weeping in the house makes you wonder if it wasn't Charlie because, or Walter, because his brother getting kidnapped literally ruined his life. Yeah. Uh, because he always blamed himself for it. I don't even think his parents blamed him for it. I mean, Christian was as much to blame. The maids were as much to blame as poor Walter was. The kid was six years old. How's he? Yeah. Right. He always blamed himself for not looking out for Charlie. So I don't know, Mm. man. I, uh, it's just, it's a, just a sad story all the way around. Yeah. No how you look at it. No, it is. Yeah. We should stop doing this. Like we should stop doing these. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, uh, I got a, I got a bad news for you about the rest of the season. So. Oh, this isn't the happy season. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dang. I was really hoping it would take a turn maybe after episode three. Um, we have some new subscribers on Patreon. So I wanted to give some shout outs and say thanks for supporting the show to Melissa, Michelle, Dakota, Patricia, Tia, Nathan, Floyd, and Megan. So thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks everybody uh, with Patreon. Um, next week or this coming uh, week will be uh, the next episode of our other series that we do uh, just for Patreon people. Come prepared to stay forever, which is the the Bell Gunnis story. And um, there's only three episodes left in that season now. Uh, this will be uh, the third from the end this coming week. And then there's only two more after that. We'll be wrapping up that story. And then uh, it won't be long before we start the next one. And I already know what it's going to be. But Oh, yeah. Nice. I'm not telling anyone yet. So, uh, but anyway, we do have, so that way you can listen to the podcast every week if you're uh-huh. a Patreon supporter. It's two different podcasts, but still you get something every week. But anyway, uh, check it out. Uh, Patreon. Did you already give the website address? Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Just check that out. Um, you know, you can be a supporter for a very little amount of money, less than a cup of Starbucks coffee. Definitely. Month, and still get four different podcast episodes so, yeah and other stuff too but definitely that so yeah all right now you can uh now feel free to proceed okay so, with what thank you to say you're welcome oh, thank you thank you no problem um, it's now time for our ghostwriter segment if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre you can email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com this one comes to us from Amy, and the subject is just podcasts. It says, hi, I recently started listening to your podcast. I live in Alton, Illinois, and I just love the way you lay out Alton history with the haunting stories. Such great context. Enjoy your podcast so much. I hope to see you at Dead of Winter this Saturday. Sincerely, Amy. Well, so over. So that's late, over. Late on the email there. We probably saw you. I'm yes. sure it was great. I bet we were both funny. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Thank you so much for writing in. I actually I get a lot. It's um, doing the tours and the dinners and stuff. It's so nice to have people come up and say, you know, you know oh, we listen to your podcast. Uh, it's, you know, I never, those are, that's a sentence I never expected to ever hear in my lifetime. <laughs> um, even after other people started doing podcasts, I never expected someone to say, I listen to your podcast. Um but you know, blame all this on Cody. He t- and I always tell everybody, Cody talked me into it. So yeah, I, I never done it thought, otherwise. But well, it is, I never I'm thought that we do. 
I never thought we would hear that sentence even after we started the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know? well, that's true. <laughs> well, they they don't say I like your podcast. They oh, say, that's true. I listen to your <laughs> podcast. So we're we're just in our minds assuming that they like it. But I don't, you know, who knows? That's a good point, though. <laughs> well, that's all I got, man. All right. Well, I guess we should probably wrap this up. Um, review us on iTunes. Leave us a leave us a uh, review, uh, preferably five stars. Um, even if you think it's really only about three, give us five anyway. Yeah. At least it helps people or really whatever, because it does help just to have whatever you put in your reviews. It does help us out. Uh, it helps people find us. Um, anyway, also, don't forget, I mentioned the podcast discount code earlier when I was talking about some of our events, but don't forget to use it if you go to shop for anything, whether it's a tour or books or whatever. Um, just use the word podcast as a promo code when you check out and uh, you will get 10% off. So it's almost like we pay you to listen mm -hmm. and all, all the deals we offer. And if you're supposed to, if you're supposed to get a shirt this February, please respond to my email so I can yes. send those out for Patreon. Yes. That's for Patreon. Um, and you can get some cool stuff. Not just everyone who wants a shirt. No. Sure, come buy one. But yeah. if you're supposed to get one on Patreon with your membership level, Cody needs you to respond now. He wants you to respond. He's, Stop what he you're doing. very frustrated when people don't respond. So Stop what you're do doing. That. Pull the so car over. I don't have to listen to him complain anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, it's really for Troy's best interest. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's all for me. <laughs> all right. Well, this episode of the American Honings podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street all about it. Yeah, and follow you, us. When you're stopping your car to send Cody that email, just yeah. yell out the window. It's somebody. Yeah. So, Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. You can find the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the shows, notes, photos, links, and more, which we said we're going to start doing more. Yes, we are going to do better about that. Um, we will. I'm going to go back to our last episode, get Cody some photos uh, that he can post, and we'll do the same for this one so that you can see uh, what's happening with some yeah. of this stuff. So I, yeah. I, uh, I, I feel like I've kind of, I told Cody to do it, and it never did. Uh, uh -huh. I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't fair to you. And then I didn't Thanks. do it. Well, I didn't do it either. Uh, but now I'm I'm going to to get on that. So okay. So well, anyway, we're working on the photos. That's the gist of what I yeah. said. So you can yes. now you can again proceed. So thank you. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying or watching and your we kids. Have some fun TikTok videos. That's I what I hear. Fun. I think they're fun. So well, you I'll may probably not, check them but out. I do. So use them. Get on oh. there and you can look at them. Okay, I'll start. Or whatever. Flipping so or liking or right. sliding. Or yeah, whatever. I don't know what you do to it either. I, I still don't understand it all. Uh, but um, it is it is kind of fun to to. It's fun because you get to put music on stuff. So I mm -hmm. that's been fun because I have a really good video of the dancing uh, polio feet from of winter that Michelle oh okay made, yeah uh, for the raffle and uh -huh. i put them to an irish jig you should watch ah, it it's okay funny so, it does sound kind of fun yeah it is funny so. uh yeah so we promise that we're much more entertaining because i mean dancing uh, irish, yeah more than it, yeah. Well, yeah but i mean more than working or studying i mean that's yeah, a little far course. but still, that's true that's know, true even so well thanks for listening we couldn't definitely wouldn't do it without you so until next time goodbye so long, so long. See, see you later, later. All right. Cool. Another one in the bag.